Good morning. Whether you're joining us over the live stream or here in person, welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson, co-lead minister and minister for values and mission at the church. I'm excited to be here this morning because it marks the eighth anniversary of full-time ministry here at the church for me. Thank you. I have with me our very special guest and preacher this morning, Reverend John Burens, as well as our wonderful lay leader, Nancy Barnard. So welcome to both of you, and welcome to all of our visitors this morning. We're so glad you're with us. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to greet the holy among us, either in the comments if you're online, or turning to those around you if you're here in person. Please join me in saying the words for lighting the chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Today marks the start of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. The ten days that follow are known as the days of awe or repentance, and they culminate on Yom Kippur, which is considered the holiest day of the year. It is a time for seeking forgiveness. Today's call to worship is called a litany of atonement and is at number 637 in the Gray Hymnal. It was chosen with the Jewish High Holy Days in mind. The litany was written by the Reverend Robert Eller Isaacs, a much-loved Unitarian Universalist minister whose life and ministry were recently mourned and celebrated at the church he served for many years, the Unity Church Unitarian of St. Paul. I will say the words in normal text, and I invite you to join me in saying the words in italics. Number 637. For remaining silent when a single voice would have made a difference, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For each time that our fears have made us rigid and inaccessible, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For each time that we have struck out in anger without just cause, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For each time our greed has blinded us to the needs of others, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For the selfishness that sets us apart and alone, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For falling short of the admonitions of the Spirit, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For losing sight of our unity, 
we forgive ourselves and each other, we begin again in love. For these and for so many acts, both evident and subtle, which have fueled the illusion of separateness, we forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. This congregation has a set of religious values that we share. Transformation, courage, compassion, community, transcendence. And out of those values, we drew our mission. It's our common religious purpose. It guides our decisions and our ministries. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday so that we may carry it in our hearts throughout the week. Let's do so now. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. We are in the time of our stewardship pledge drive. Next Sunday is our celebration Sunday where we all pledge together and then have a great big party afterwards. So we hope you will come to that. And each week we're having some folks come up and share with us what the church has meant to them and why they pledge and contribute generously. And this week I am thrilled to ask Michael Kersey to come and share with us. Good morning, y'all. I want to thank Peter Durkin and the Stewardship Committee for inviting me to share with you why my family supports this church with an annual pledge. I know it's not always easy to get you used to testify, but I'm here because this church is important and worth testifying about. I'm Michael Kersey, longtime member. By long time, I mean that when I first came to this church as a visitor, Slacker was still in theaters at its first release, and Ann Richards had just been elected governor of Texas. It's been a while. I've gone from being a visitor to being a regular coffee hour attendee to being sometimes more and sometimes less involved in the life of this church. For the last decade, I've been facilitating a mindful meditation practice that meets here on Monday nights. During my time here, I've made dear friends. Married my sweetheart right here in this sanctuary in a ceremony officiated by an interim minister, the Reverend Pete Peterson, during a previous period of transition. Raised a child here through RE, choir, camps, and AL. In my time here, I found this church to be a place to connect, to learn, to grow, and practice being a better human being. First UU has been my core community in times of crisis and of joy. It's a place of music, poetry, inspiring sermons, and meaningful ritual. But this is a stewardship testimonial, so here's my story. When I first came to this church in 1991, I didn't fully understand what stewardship meant. We gave small amounts, we were involved in some programs, but didn't really grasp the concept of annual pledging or stewardship season. As time went on, we came to have a better understanding. The stewardship campaign is like the solar panels above our heads right now. 
The annual stewardship campaign provides one of the basic resources that empowers this church community and provides the means for us to do what we dream of doing. It's the key input to the budget that church leadership will present to the congregation for approval in December. It helps determine what we can accomplish in the coming year and beyond. One way of thinking about the annual pledge campaign is as a cooperative. We're all pitching in, not just for our own benefit, but so that we're sharing the load to ensure that this church is here for all who need it and is working towards fulfilling our mission. In realizing this, we made an annual pledge. And when we acknowledged that this church, what this church means to us, we dug deeper and started making a fair share contribution. So how much is fair share? The UUA suggests 2 to 3% of your take-home pay as the lowest level for the fair share contribution, and it goes up from there. Of course, some people won't be able to afford that, and other people can afford a lot more. But we're all in this together. The members of this congregation are the primary source of financing for this church. I so want to go off on a possibly mind-glazing tangent here about how Unitarian Universalism stems from the root of a 17th century flowering of free and independent churches beholden to no other, no higher church authority or state sponsorship. Congregational polity. And about how the power in each and every UU church rests with the congregation that we ourselves are ultimately responsible for making our vision a reality. But I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I cut all my bits about James Luther Adams. I'm going to reel myself back. I've only got three minutes. <laughs> Suffice to say, we're all in this together. I suppose it's possible to travel towards beloved community as a solitary pilgrim, but I'd much rather join my resources and commitment with all of yours and travel together in a joyous caravan. So, I invite all of you to join my family in making an annual pledge in the spirit of and commitment to this year's stewardship theme. Rebuild, renew, rise up. Thanks for listening. Instead of having a storybook today, Reverend John has shared a reading with us, which Kelly and I are now going to attempt to act out for you. <laughs> this is a conversation adapted from the novel Sweet Remnants of Summer by Alexander McCall Smith. Two parents are talking about their child's questions about God and where God lives and are grappling with how to respond. Perhaps we should just give him some very general answers. We can just tell him God is all about us, and then leave it at that. Unless it would be more honest to bring him up as an atheist. He then fixed her with a stare. Surely vagueness was not what his wife, the philosopher, really wanted, was it? It seemed to her that he himself was undecided, and that he was asking for her guidance. I'm not sure myself. He sensed her discomfort. I would like to have a faith. 
I'd like to believe in a world in which there is something precious in each and every one of us, something that has a value, a meaning, beyond our petty human concerns. Do you think that too sentimental, too much wishful thinking? No, no, I don't think so. I would like to believe that as well. And I think that sometimes we need to have some beliefs, myths if you want to call them that, that allow us to feel the things I've just mentioned, that give us a language to express the sense of value. Yes, believe me, I understand what you mean. Because in the end, we have to act together. If we are to combat the things that are wrong in this world, we have to have enough faith to act together. And a sense of faith, as long as it's benevolent, enables us to do that. If we are children feeling lost, and sometimes that's exactly what we are. I agree, or it at least seems that way these days. Then, by joining hands with one another, we give ourselves the necessary courage to fight the battles that we know we're going to have to fight. Last time I was in Austin, it was to consult with your leadership about transitions and to reemphasize what you were doing this year about rebuilding, reconnecting. About years ago, the great singer Harry Belafonte and the equally great American folk singer, African-American singer Odetta, did a duet at Carnegie Hall. A duet on an old folk tune, There's a Hole in the Bucket. It seems to me that they were making a commentary on how behind American racism and other social injustice, there was a kind of emptiness. It brings me to the pitch that I've chosen as a reading for this morning, one that's attributed to Rabbi Jesus, although it is not as familiar as many others. It can be found in the Gospel according to Matthew, and it goes this way. When an evil comes out of a soul, it goes through other dry places seeking rest, but does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the home that I left. When it arrives, it finds that the soul is unoccupied, swept clean and empty. And then it goes and brings in seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and live there. And the final state of that soul is then worse than before. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. There ends the scriptural passage, but it always helps me to remember that Rabbi Jesus was teaching and preaching in a context of oppression when in his times it was the Romans who were the original fascists.
I want to begin by congratulating my dear friend Chris on his anniversary as a UU minister. I started a little bit earlier. This is my 50th year. goes back to about the time that Odetta and Harry Belafonte were doing that duet about a hole in the bucket. But this summer when I read that scene that Chris and your DRE did together about the philosopher Isabel Dalhousie and her husband Jamie debating what to tell their son about where God lived, I had a flashback to the beginning of my own ministry and the very first interview I had about becoming a settled minister. There was a very smart lawyer on the search committee whose questions always seemed to have a little bit of gotcha in them. Is God, if any, he said, within us or beyond us? If anywhere, I replied, mostly between us, I and thou. Blessedly, he laughed, liked the answer, and I became his minister. <laughs> Later, when I was a candidate for the presidency of the UUA, one of the many things that my family and friends had to put up with constantly was hearing me referred to as the evangelical rabbi of liberal religion a phrase bestowed upon me along with an honorary degree by one of our seminaries. It provoked my daughter to send me a card that she had found when she was at college, showing a bearded guy, and I had one even then, glasses, hair somehow all loved off on top, but a little yarmulke above it, and wearing a prayer shawl labeled the Velveteen Rabbi. with the caption, so when do I get to run and play with the real rabbis? The answer I've learned, maybe when you get to retire. Because not long ago, I was having lunch with a dear friend who is a rabbi, when I found myself recounting a parable that has always meant a great deal to me, told by the great Jewish sage and rabbi Martin Buber, the author of I Am Thou. When the modern world began, said Boober, during the revolutions here in America and in France, there were three ideals that were said to walk hand in hand. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Uh, we might translate that last term from the French better today as kinship. That is, the spiritual sense that we're all sisters and brothers and others, children of one great mystery. The modern tragedy, Buber added, is that the three ideals then divided. Liberty seemed to go west to America, where it changed its character and became mere freedom from, with no limits on seizing land from its indigenous inhabitants or exploiting Mother Earth. Freedom from the claims of equality even, or kinship with other races. Meanwhile, equality, through further revolutions, went east 
and lost touch with liberty. It became the soulless equality of the gulag, or of masses all waving Mao's little red book. While kinship, that spiritual sense of our common humanity, almost seemed to go into hiding kept alive chiefly in the hearts and souls of the oppressed. Reemerging into history at times, seen in the African-American struggle for inclusive civil rights, and then by the struggles of women and sexual minorities and indigenous people and immigrants, all demanding more equality. While in China, unarmed students faced down tanks and held up images of our Statue of Liberty. And in Poland, Catholics joined with secular workers in solidarity, seeking civic freedom, helping to bring down the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain and the false equality behind it. These struggles, of course, are hardly over in our world. In China, citizens of Hong Kong, Tibetans, Uyghurs, Promised democracy are still struggling against authoritarian rule. Poland now finds itself giving sanctuary to millions of Ukrainians who are refugees from Russian aggression. And meanwhile, here in America, the emptiness in the American soul manifests itself in the rejection of refugees. Objection to the idea that black lives really do matter and attempts to control the reproductive choices of women, or to teach only a self-congratulatory version of American history. And as for our Statue of Liberty, I, I can't help but remember what the great German theologian Karl Barth, a refugee from the Nazis, said when he was interviewed aboard a ship entering New York Harbor. He, as a Christian, knew that while Jewish refugees were being turned away, well, I think that Statue of Liberty needs a little demythologizing, he said. Which brings me to the passage in the Gospel that I read earlier when you couldn't see me. The one about casting out one evil spirit and seven more coming in. Sometimes I think our experience here in America has been almost the mirror image of that. We have been trying for decades, the whole time I've been in ministry, to cast out of the American soul the demons at its heart of racism, sexism, colonialism, classism, ageism, heterosexism, ableism. But in trying to empty America's soul of such discriminatory and debilitating attachments, in the last few years during this pandemic, and maybe starting especially in 2016, I think we have exposed the one ism that is at the root of all the rest, namely the plague of narcissism. It is, after all, best manifested when we elect as the chief magistrate of our country a narcissist in chief. 
There are problems in the American soul, deep problems. It's easy to see this on the religious right, where people preach a prosperity gospel as though that's what Jesus had in mind. <laughs> Send me your money. I truly promise God will make you rich. It's worked for me. Similarly, there is a secular tendency in some nominally liberal spirituality that it shall all be about you because it starts with you. Learning to be your best self, thinking yourself Godward, losing ego, which is always a tricky business in order to rise in consciousness, but without having to give up very much. Today, you know, despite the Joel Austins and the big churches, the actual fastest group, growing group in American religion are those who, when asked what their faith is, reply, none. Or give the mantra, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. The difference being, of course, that spirituality may be just about you. But religion is about us. The fastest growing demographic group in America is people living alone. The fastest growing public health issue beyond the pandemic, by many accounts, is actually loneliness. And it's attendant problems of addiction, self-harm, a suicide rate that in America has doubled in the last 20 years. I, I don't know how you felt about watching the funeral exercises for Queen Elizabeth II. I'm no monarchist. But it did occur to me that for many people all around the world, not just in her own commonwealths, she served as a kind of symbol of duty and devotion to the common good. Which brings me back to Martin Buber, who once said that there is simply no solution to be found in the lives of isolated, detached, or self-seeking individuals. Though we should probably pray that in times of need, some spark of faith, wisdom, connection, and compassion can be rekindled within them. No, he said, the only solution lies in the imperfect but authentic communities that try to live together in the spirit of the great prophets and the teachers of wisdom and ask their pointed questions and listen to their warnings without pretending to have all the answers. The American sociologist Robert Bella, in his book Habits of the Heart, already warned against American spirituality becoming too individualistic. He talked about a New Age phenomenon he called Shilaism, the delusion that one can form a religion of one's own. Just about you. And forget about the authentic struggle for equality, kinship, and freedom. 
Today, even secularism seems infected with this virus of narcissism. I look at tech billionaires like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, funding candidates who, like them, simply hate all government because it's an effort to serve the common good and seem willing to uh, attack gay rights and reproductive choice, even when they don't agree with them, just because they can get candidates who will reduce their taxes. By the way, I've been in ministry so long now that I really recall vividly what it was like before Roe v. Wade. I hope you remember that that case was funded by the women of First Unitarian Church of Dallas. I served on the clergy consultation service on problem pregnancy. I found myself raising funds for women to travel across state lines to get medical treatment, even go outside the country. When I was a hospital chaplain in training, I scrubbed in to minister to a woman who had had to convince two psychiatrists that she would kill herself if she had to go through a 14th childbirth. A Guatemalan immigrant who had already seen three of her children die while she and her husband were struggling to feed the remaining seven. I found her decision to be a tragic one, but also in a profound sense, a holy sacrifice. And when I was president of the denomination, I worked very hard to try to make connections across differences of faith labels. Because authentic religio, when you go back to the Latin, is about relinking. I worked with Francis Kissling, the founder of Catholics for Choice, and with Sister Joan Shittister, the feisty and articulate leader of the Benedictines in America. She and I were once at a meeting where we were trying to face down the pretensions of the so-called moral majority or Christian coalition. And a male Methodist bishop piped up expressing worry about how the conservatives in his conference were going to give him a hard time. And Sister Joan replied, you're not going to get very much sympathy from me, you know. I'm trying to reform the Catholic Church. <laughs> but she served me as a reminder that in every authentic community of faith I know, regardless of its label, there are people of real integrity and conscience. And we must never forget that as we Unitarian Universalists ourselves try to form and sustain such diverse community ourselves. What actually first inspired this sermon was rereading a meditation by Sister Joan, in which she pointed out that every one of us experiences a kind of inner push-pull. One part individuating, my conscience, the other part pulled toward connection. This, she said, is our spiritual condition. And it can only be resolved if we seek a sense of connection with the universe and with others and practice what Howard Thurman called real disciplines of the spirit in an inclusive community so that our sense of kinship remains at the core of our struggles for freedom and equality. Or as that 
great advocate for peace, Thomas Merton once put it, we cannot find ourselves within ourselves, but only in others, while at the same time, before we can go out to others, we must first find ourselves. Such a paradox that if we want to grow our inner lives, we have to find the discipline of individual contemplation and reflection, and then also join in that collective reflection of what is truly of worth that brings us to communal worship. The great Unitarian spiritual leader, Harry Schofield, who served the church where I now live in San Francisco, spoke of his daily spiritual practice as trying to live by heart. He began every day in silent meditation, trying to set aside his fears and anxieties and truly welcome what would come to him that day. He tried to listen to the deeper voice within and then reinforce it with memorized insights from the great poets and wisdom teachers. He tried to cultivate a sense of the wholeness of life within, beyond, and especially between, before going out to face down the powers and principalities of evil that beset the world. So I pointed out, we have allies in places we don't always remember. 90% of Roman Catholic women make the conscientious decision to use birth control. The moral majority proves to be neither. Most shockingly, only 20% of people who claim to be Christian evangelicals or Roman Catholics are active participants in congregational life these days. There was a great historian in our own movement, Sidney Mead, who once titled a book about American religion, The Nation with the Soul of a Church, citing the British writer G.K. Chesterton. But today, if America is still a nation with the soul of a church, it is a nation with a great emptiness in its soul. And I think our young people know why. First of all, there is a great deal of opposition to looking honestly at our history as a country. It's history of genocide, slavery. You have politicians running on, we shouldn't have to do that. But if you can't look yourself in the mirror, if you can't see yourself with some honesty and forgiveness, and then begin again, there is an evasion that causes an emptiness. And there is a narcissism rather than a wholeness. I remember once I was in a glitzy shopping mall. It was during that annual uh, consumerist potlatch that we uh, used to call Christmas. 
And people were bustling around, uh, seemingly burdened with their buying. And I found myself meditating in a slightly grumpy way on how even gift-giving in our culture can become tainted with uh, narcissistic forms of competition and self-congratulation. And then I caught sight of a teenage guy with the earbuds in, no burdens on his body, wearing a t-shirt with the memorable slogan, only you can prevent narcissism. (laughs) Which I took home with me. But today I would actually say, no, no, actually only you and you and you, and you, and I together can prevent one another from falling into that cultural, spiritual, political abyss that is the emptiness at the core of our consumerist culture and our American soul. Or to paraphrase another great preacher, if we are become entirely wrapped up in ourselves, we're just another small package. Of course, each of us is unique and precious as an individual. We affirm that as a basic principle of our free faith. We don't ask you in growing your soul to be anything but yourself. But that is the challenge we share. Life, said A. Powell Davies, is nothing but a chance to grow a soul which is made up of a sense of deep, integrated connection with oneself, with all the mistakes we've made, with the hope for the future, our spiritual kinship with one another, and a profound, intuitive sense that at the core of life there is connection with all that lives and all that exists. In other words, the whole in the American soul can only be filled with more people struggling to do exactly what you say you try, want to do in your mission. Together to nourish souls, to transform lives, and to do justice to build beloved community. I would remind you, friends, that beloved community is already present when we gather like this. When we let down the barriers and actually are touched within, when we connect in small groups, when we support one another, when we pray for one another in whatever way and care for one another in practical ways, then where does God live? Right among us between us. When we reaffirm our faith in life and its creative mystery and our devotion to it with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and then try to help one another to grow souls by loving our neighbors as we would love ourselves, then we embody that mission.
that graces your wall. Never before in American history has our culture more desperately needed the spiritual renewal and rebuilding and reconnecting that our progressive faith has to offer. May we bear witness to it in our own lives and never cease to invite others to join us in sharing its good news. May we show it forth by our example and when necessary, to paraphrase St. Francis, use words and story and even song to give voice to our faith. So may it be. Amen. Please join me in extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Now in our going, may all that is holy bless us and keep us. May that sense of spiritual kinship cultivated here fill our souls and keep us connected with our best selves, with one another, and with all that is precious and loving and justice-seeking. Go in peace, my friends and be the beloved community that you want to see. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.